Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome once again to the mansion on the hill, the house of strange, the palace of mystery. This is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. This is season five. We thank you for listening to the show. Hello, everybody. This is Terry from Texas. I am back from my hospital stay. I'm doing all right, and I'm ready to jump back in. I want to talk this time about disappearances. Uh, some that were solved by the person reappearing or have never been solved. Um, why do people disappear? Do they, do they go away because something is wrong in their life? Do they go away because very possibly they got amnesia and don't know who they are or where they belong? Who knows? Um, I don't know what would cause someone to just walk away from a life. I guess they each have their own reasons and they have their own explanations as to why they do what they did. Let's start off with uh, the disappearance of Agatha Christie. You know who Agatha Christie is. She was a, a great British crime writer back in the 20s. On Friday, December 3rd, 1926, the English crime novelist Agatha Christie vanished from her home in Berkshire, England. It was the perfect tabloid story with all the elements of one of Christie's own whodunit mysteries. So what was the truth behind her disappearance? Let's explore the author's 11 missing days and the unprecedented manhunt sparked in the wake of her disappearance. Shortly after 9.30 p.m. on Friday, Agatha Christie got up from her armchair and climbed the stairs of her Berkshire home. She kissed her sleeping daughter, Rosalind, age seven, goodnight, and made her way back downstairs again. Then she climbed into her Morris Cowley and drove off into the night. She would not be seen again for 11 days. Her disappearance would spark one of the largest manhunts ever mounted. 
Agatha Christie was already a famous writer and more than 1,000 policemen were assigned to the case, along with hundreds of civilians. For the first time, airplanes were also involved in the search. The Home Secretary, William Joinson Hicks, urged the police to make faster progress in finding her. Two of Britain's most famous crime writers, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, and Dorothy Sayers, author of the Lord Peter Whimsey series, were drawn into the search. Their specialist knowledge, it was hoped, would help find the missing writer. It didn't take long for the police to locate her car. It was found abandoned on a steep slope at Newlands Corner near Guilford. But there was no sign of Agatha Christie herself, nor was there any evidence that she had been involved in an accident. As the first day of investigations progressed into the second and third, and there was still no sign of her, speculation began to mount. The press had a field day, inventing ever more lurid theories as to what might have happened. Again, it was the perfect tabloid story, with all the elements of an Agatha Christie whodunit. Close to the scene of the abandoned car was a natural spring known as the Silent Pool, where two young children were reputed to have died. Some journalists ventured to suggest that the novelist had deliberately drowned herself. Yet her body was nowhere to be found and suicide seemed unlikely, for her professional life had never looked so optimistic. Her sixth novel, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, was selling well and she was already a household name. Some said the incident was nothing more than a publicity stunt, a clever ruse to promote her new book. Others hinted at a far more sinister turn of events. There were rumors that she had been murdered by her husband, Archie Christie, a former First World War pilot and serial philanderer. He was known to have a mistress. Arthur Conan Doyle, a keen occultist, tried using paranormal powers to solve the mystery. He took one of Christie's gloves to a celebrated medium in the hope that it would provide answers. It did not. Dorothy Sayers visited the scene of the writer's disappearance to search for possible clues. This proved no less futile. By the second week of the search, the news had spread around the world. It even made the front page of the New York Times. Well, of course it would. She was a worldwide known author. How long was Agatha Christie missing for? And what happened? Well, not until December 14th, fully 11 days after she disappeared, was Agatha Christie finally located. She was found safe and well in a hotel in Harrogate, but in circumstances so strange that they raised more questions than they solved. Christie herself was unable to provide any clues to what had happened. She remembered nothing. It was left to the police to piece together what might have taken place. They came to the conclusion that Agatha Christie had left home and traveled to London, crashing her car en route. She had then boarded a train to Harrogate. On arriving at the spa town, she checked into the Swan Hydro, now the Old Swan Hotel, with almost no luggage. Bizarrely, she used the assumed name of Teresa Neal. 
who was her husband's mistress. Harrogate was the height of elegance in the 1920s and filled with fashionable young things. Agatha Christie did nothing to arouse suspicion as she joined in with the balls, dances, and palm court entertainment. She was eventually recognized by one of the hotel's banjo players, a Bob Tappan, who alerted the police. They tipped off her husband, Colonel Christie, who came to collect Agatha immediately, but his wife was in no hurry to leave. Indeed, she kept him waiting in the hotel lounge while she changed into her evening dress. Agatha Christie never spoke about the missing 11 days of her life, and over the years there has been much speculation about what really happened between December 3rd and December 14th of 1926. Her husband said that she had suffered a total memory loss as a result of the car crash, but according to biographer Andrew Norman, the novelist may well have been in what's known as a fugue state, or more technically, a psychogenic trance. It's a rare condition brought on by trauma or depression. Norman says that her adoption of a new personality, Teresa Neal, and that her failure to recognize herself in newspaper photographs were signs that she had fallen into psychogenic amnesia. I believe she was suicidal, says Norman. Her state of mind was very low, and she writes about it later through the character of Celia in her autobiographical novel, Unfinished Portrait. She soon made a full recovery and once again picked up her writer's pen. But she was no longer prepared to tolerate her husband's philandering. She divorced him in 1928 and later married the distinguished archaeologist Sir Max Mallowan. We'll probably never know for certain what happened on those lost 11 days. Agatha Christie left a mystery that even Hercule Poirot would have been unable to solve. In what is perhaps the most baffling and tragic aviation mystery of all time, more than 200 people on board Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 appeared to vanish mid-air on March 8, 2014, despite government officials setting out on what they called an unprecedented search by air and sea that involved multiple countries and spanned at least three years, the aircraft and the remains of the 239 passengers remain missing. It's also still unclear what caused the commercial plane to suddenly veer off course. The trip began as usual when the Beijing-bound Boeing 777 aircraft departed as scheduled from Kuala Lumpur Airport in Malaysia, carrying 12 crew members and 227 passengers. But it went missing soon after a routine handover between air traffic control systems. Instead of heading to its planned destination, the aircraft flew back across the Malaysian Peninsula and made its way to the southern Indian Ocean, officials said. During a news conference, after the release of the latest safety investigation report into the incident, the lead investigator said no cause could be confirmed or ruled out. Due to the significant lack of evidence available to the team, he said, 
We are unable to determine with any certainty the reason that the aircraft diverted. At some point, the aircraft systems were manually turned off. But he said signs did not appear to indicate that the flight's pilots had maliciously cut off communication. Some aviation experts had contradicted this conclusion in a 60 Minutes Australia special in May of 2018. There was also the possibility that a third party illegally interfered, investigators said. The investigator, though, pointed out the unusual fact that no one has since claimed responsibility for the act. Who would do it just for nothing, he said, and that is indeed the question. Not just who would do it, but who would do it with no reason. Although two-year-old Amber Rose Smith was missing for only a day, her case is truly one of the most bizarre and intriguing disappearance stories. According to her father, the young girl was playing happily at their home in Nuevo County, Michigan, and I'm sorry if I messed that up, on October 8th of 2013. She was out of sight of her father only briefly as he went into another room. However, upon his return, she was no longer there. A full-scale search involving numerous volunteers was launched almost immediately, despite the entire area undergoing absolute scrutiny by the hundred-strong search party. It appeared that the young girl had seemingly vanished into thin air. The following day, however, as searches continued, Amber Rose was found only a few miles from her home, and what's more. She was discovered in a location that had already been thoroughly searched the previous day. How had she had managed to avoid the search teams who went into action so soon after her disappearance, as well as how she managed to cover so much ground, left searchers and investigators baffled. The account of Stephen Kabaki is not a brutal case of imprisonment, but one of genuine mystery bordering on the supernatural. One February morning in 1978 near Lake Michigan, student Stephen Kabaki would venture out to indulge in several hours of skiing. However, when he still hadn't returned the following day, a huge search was put into motion. Strangely and ominously, footprints were discovered in a location where the student claimed to be heading. And what's more, they stopped right at the frozen water's edge. There was no sign of any markings on the frozen surface of the water, and no signs that the ice had been broken anywhere. Later that day, Stephen's skis and backpack were discovered. No other sign of Kabaki came to light, and the searchers were eventually called off. His family, while not giving up hope, were prepared for the worst. Then, over a year later, in early May 1979, Stephen Kabaki would appear out of the blue at his parents' doorstep. He had very little memory of where he had been. He had awoken earlier that day in a field in Pittsfield, which is hundreds of miles from where he disappeared, and around 40 miles from the family home. Even stranger, he was wearing clothes that weren't his and had a strange bag of maps with him that he didn't recognize. Rather than compensate himself financially with the many offers from media people for his story, 
Kabaki would retreat from the public, refusing to speak of the incident, of which he had no memory, and not wishing to undergo such things as hypnotic regression, as he wasn't experiencing any psychological problems, and wished to keep it that way. Perhaps one of the strangest cases of disappearance, followed by an equally strange reappearance, is that of Dr. William Horatio Bates, who had seemingly vanished into thin air from New York City in August of 1902. He left a short note for his wife stating he was, quote, called out of town to some major operations and that he was glad to get so much money for us all. Furthermore, he would write details later, he said. And with that, he was gone. What is perhaps curious, aside from the hurried manner which he seemingly left, is that he was already a man of considerable wealth, which made his line of being glad to get so much money slightly odd. He would not return, nor would he write as he had promised. After several days, his wife would use her husband's fellow Mason friends to try to locate him, which, especially considering the times, was perhaps key in doing so. After his picture and details traveled across lodges around the United States, and as far afield as Europe, information would reach Mrs. Bates that William was in a London hospital. Furthermore, he was not in a good way, looking haggard, thin, and with deeply sunken eyes. Bizarrely, despite access to funds at a London bank account, he appeared to be suffering from malnutrition. Even stranger, when Mrs. Bates arrived in London, William claimed to not recognize or remember her. He did, however, agree to stay with her at the hotel so that his memory might return. Initially, all appeared well. He would even recall being asked to set sail from New York several weeks earlier and operating on a patient with a brain abscess. However, only two days later, he would leave the hotel and disappear once again. This time, at least as far as his wife was concerned, it was forever. She would pass away in 1907, still searching for her ill husband. A fellow doctor and friend would locate Bates in Grand Forks, North Dakota in 1910, working in an ophthalmology practice he owned. He would eventually return to New York with his friend, going into partnership together. However, Bates would never, at least according to him, recover his memories of his life before that mysterious call in 1902, nor would he recall what happened to him. One of the most recent of our strange disappearance and reappearance stories occurred on September 22nd of 2012 in the Arkansas Ozarks, in which many strange things happened anyway. On that afternoon, brother and sister, Eddie Huff and Linda Artiega, set out for a day's hiking in the forests of the region. However, when Eddie returned alone, claiming to have left his sister at a relative's house, something seemed amiss. Even more so when it was discovered that the 53-year-old woman was not at the relative's house that Eddie had claimed. 
Eddie, seemingly with no memory of what had happened, was now confused and a little disoriented, to say the least. A search party was organized, and Arteaga was eventually discovered in a seemingly random location in the middle of the deep woodland. What's more, she appeared shocked and unnerved by whatever incident had unfolded and led her here. She would later claim, although the details were murky at best, that her brother had suffered some kind of injury and that she had volunteered to go and find help. She would then state, as she walked through the woods, she came across other hikers who, try as they might, simply didn't seem to be able to hear her when she called out to them. Even more disturbingly, she would witness bizarre shadowy figures that appeared to be watching her from the trees and bushes. The next thing she knew, she was coming to in the forest with the search party calling her name. This rather bizarre incident remains unexplained. Now, Arkansas is one of the homes of what they call haints or haunts. Strange things happen in those hills and mountains, in the Ozarks. So this is just another one to add to the list. On the early afternoon of January 21st of 1987, Gabriel Nagy, a married father of two from Sydney, Australia, would call his wife to let her know that he would be home from work early that day. Then he vanished without a trace for almost a quarter of a century. Most would suspect, whether through foul play or his own hand or some bizarre and tragic circumstance, that he had died shortly after that phone call. However, in 2010, just before Nagy would have been officially declared dead, a clue would suddenly leap out at the detective in charge of the cold case, Georgia Robinson. A Medicare card in Gabriel Nagy's name was eventually tracked down, leading Robinson to visit the property and its owner. The man in question was confused as to why the police were at his door. However, it didn't take long for Robinson to realize that the man was indeed the missing person from January of 87. What's more, it would appear he was truthful when claiming no memory of his life with a wife and two kids. However, with patience and using photographs of his family from the police files, Nagy had what he would later describe as flashbulb moments, where memories began to emerge from the haze. Slowly, a timeline was pieced together it would appear that at some point after the phone call, Nagy was attacked, as his first memory is of waking up with some kind of head injury, so bad that it was bleeding. Following this, his recollection was hazy at best, with the most prominent memory suggesting he had camped in various areas in Queensland, as well as working on farms and fishing boats and even, on occasion, sleeping on the streets. Slowly, his name had come back to him, allowing him to apply for a Medicare card. He would ultimately be reunited with his family, who continued to work to restore as much of his memory as possible. Whether a physical attack would cause him to lose such vast amounts of his memories, or whether, as the family suspect, dissociative fugue is to blame, well, that remains to be seen. The case though, 
is certainly one of the most intriguing of recent times. The case of Philip Cesarego isn't the most mysterious, but it is definitely intriguing, not least due to the links the British soldier would go to to restart his life anew, particularly concerning his desire to join the ranks of the Elite Special Air Service, or the SAS, Special Forces Unit of the British Army, which had twice turned him down. His daughter would later speak of how his rejection from the unit had caused her father to enter into a fantasy state where he would dress how many SAS men dressed and purposely drink in establishments known to be frequented by members of the unit. Then, in Croatia, in 1991, he would simply disappear. Some accounts state that he was seemingly killed by a car bomb. However, in 2000, a strange and intriguing book would appear on the New York Times bestseller list, entitled Jihad, The Secret War in Afghanistan. It was authored by an equally strange and intriguing gentleman named Tom Carew, who had made statements in then recent years of having served in the SAS for over two decades. He had spoken of how he had trained Mujahideen fighters against the Soviets in the 70s and 80s. Carew would also become a regular talking head following the 9-11 attacks. However, the more he appeared in public, the more his claims began to unravel, not least when other SAS soldiers would essentially accuse Carew of being a fraud. By the time the BBC's Newsnight program was involved, it was discovered that Carew was, in fact, Philip Cesarego the same man who had tried so hard to join the SAS years previously. Interestingly, Cesarego would again disappear, eventually using the name Philip Stevenson in Belgium. In 2009, he was discovered dead in a rented garage, apparently the victim of accidental carbon monoxide poisoning. Why do people disappear from public view? I asked that earlier. Some do it out of fear of prosecution for certain crimes. Understandable. Some do it out of simple fear, believing someone's out to get them. That's also understandable. Paranoia really strikes deep sometimes in people and can cause them to do really weird things. Others leave out of discontentment with their lots in life. Some have accidents or have suffered injuries which cause memory loss. Finally, some have mental health issues that take them in and out of reality. Whatever the reasons, it is certainly strange when people go missing either singly or in groups. It is sometimes even stranger when people suddenly reappear. It is understood that whatever the reason for a disappearance or reappearance, the reasons are valid in the minds of the actors. When large groups of people disappear, it's usually due to tragic circumstances, such as Flight 370, and we grieve with those left behind. We find evidence of disaster, and that explains a large loss of life. But then, when groups of people, civilizations in fact, disappear, it leaves a huge mystery. And that mystery begs to be solved and it also leaves some severely mixed feelings to be dealt with 
Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories, mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And at the first weekend of the month, we have video from The Witching Hour and Unexplained Cases. Aaron has instituted a new area called Entertaining Short Films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories, nothing in particular, no particular genre, just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments, or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody.